Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 1, which is dedicated to the topic of rapid religious change. Today, we will hear Tanya Lerman share her thoughts on how voices of God impact rapid religious change. She's the Watkins University professor at Stanford um, University in the anthropology department. And she's well-known public intellectual and one of the uh, best speakers that I've known in academia. So I'm not gonna say a lot more because I wanna give her every second uh, that she deserves to share with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Derek, and thank you for a a lovely introduction. It's great to be here. Um, This is a very cool audience to, to speak with. I'm going to talk about a phenomenon that I think is utterly fascinating and actually often involved in experiences of rapid religious change. But before I talk about voices, I'm going to say that one of the things I want to, the the mechanism I'm going to talk about that enables the event to take place is the fact that humans will judge an ambiguous event or a thought and the judgment will change the event. So before I leap in, I just wanted to give you a tiny feel of how this works. And I'm going to play for you something, a kind of a, an experience that many people, when they first hear it, take to be a, a sound like the twittering of birds. Okay. So now I'm going to tell you that that's actually a sentence where they sort of the, the, the sound has been curved. And it's actually the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And now I'm going to play it for you again. You get it? Okay, so and one of the things we know about this is that once you understand, once you've been told what sentence it is, you can no longer hear it as incoherent sound. So with that, I want to talk about the experience of voices. Um, So what's a voice? A voice is a sense of being spoken to by someone who's not humanly present. And we're not talking about somebody in the next room. The experience involves a sense of not me You know this is someone else or something different because it doesn't feel like you. It feels, even if it's in your mind, it feels like there's a different, it doesn't have the quality of you-ness, it doesn't feel like you produce it, it's somehow more different. And when we call it a voice, we usually mean that there's an auditory or quasi-auditory quality to the experience. It feels as if it's a little out there. You know of many of these events. They go, Saul on the road to Damascus. God speaks to Abraham. Gabriel speaks to Muhammad. The angel Moroni speaks to Joseph Smith. These events matter. And they matter because they're evidence of spirit. Spirits are invisible for the most part. 
in an ordinary way. And so when you speak, when the spirit speaks, you know that it's there. Seeing them matters, perhaps. Feeling them matters. But the speaking communicates to you, the human, that the spirit wants some kind of interaction, instruction, some action. Voices have mattered in history. The history of Christianity would have been different if Augustine hadn't heard a voice. A friend came to visit him. Augustine was, was torn at the time that his friend visited. He'd wanted to be a, a Christian. He felt torn against himself. He didn't know what to do. His friend comes. He's emotionally overwrought. He goes into the garden, throws himself at the foot of a fig tree, and he hears a voice. And when he follows the instructions of a voice, he is able to convert. The history of France might have been different had a young peasant woman not heard three beings who spoke to her. And we know that she heard their voices because she turns her head during the trial and she looks to hear what they're, to, she looks for them as she hears what they have to say. In 1956, on the eve of the Montgomery bus boycotts, Martin Luther King Jr. was scared. He had death threats. He didn't know what to do. And he sat in his kitchen, at his kitchen table, and prayed. And he heard Jesus say, I will be with you. And so he chose to go forward. So voices matter to ordinary people as well. This is what I do for a living. I talk to people who have these unusual experiences. I've talked to hundreds of people who've heard voices in, in some form. And this next, my next example is a woman who graduated from a decent university, UC Santa Cruz, and the best job she could get was the morning shift at the 7-Eleven. And this is what she said to me. One morning, this woman came in and she looked like she'd been up all night. She looked like it had been rough. She threw her stuff on the counter, two six-packs of Miller Lite, some cat food, a food product of some sort, donuts, I think. And she looked at me and she said, hey, can you get me a carton of cigarettes? And I'm thinking, excellent. This is what I wanted to be doing with my life. So I turned around, I rolled my eyes, and I started thinking my judgmental thoughts. In that moment, I literally heard the voice of God say to me, do not judge this woman. I have created her in my image, and I love her. And poor woman, I almost fell over. I'm trying to give her change, and I'm like, whoa, the voice of God spoke to me. I have been changed ever since. So how common are these experiences? If you show up with an NIH clipboard and you ask people, you get a rate of about 5 to 10%. So 6% is currently the canonical rate in the scientific literature. When I sit with people and I talk and try to understand and I often offer a space to talk about things you might not ordinarily talk about, when I sit with charismatic evangelical Christians, Christians who seek to have a back-and-forth relationship with God, about a third of them say they've had some event which, in which they've heard God's voice, and it had a kind of sensory or quasi-sensory quality to it. When people lose somebody that they love, we know that even in this culture, 70 to 80, and in other cultures, 90% of them, see, hear, or feel the person they've lost in the months or in the years after their loss. 
So this is what's kind of cool about these experiences. They're not uncommon, but they don't happen to everyone. Why is that? Well, one explanation is that God, God or lost spouses only talk to some people. And I'm not unwilling, I, I think it, I'm, I'm not willing to say that God is not speaking. I do want to suggest that if God speaks, I think God speak, may speak to more people than who hear his voice. And that I as an anthropologist can say something about the human dimensions of what enables some people to hear. The most natural explanation is that people have a bit of psychiatric distress, that there's a continuum, and up on one end are the flagrantly psychotic people who stand on the street corner and gesticulate to the air, and then people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Augustine have a little less of whatever that is, and that enables them to have these experiences. And that's actually a very compelling argument in the contemporary psychiatric literature, and it's very politically appealing because it suggests that if some people are really, really ill and other people have a little bit of what they had, maybe those people have learned to manage that experience, and maybe we can learn from that to pull down the illness of the people who struggle. Let me give you a feel of um, the way people experience psychosis, and by the word psychosis, I mean these, these experiences, people whose thoughts, some of whose thoughts and perceptions are radically disconnected from what we would call reality. This is a young man I, I met in San Mateo, and it's my account of his experience. When he was driving, he would hear voices from the other cars. When he stood by the pavement and a car drove by him, Noise sloughed off of the car's trunk like water and resolved into voices, like a bubbling stream of jeering, laughing words. When the room was noisy, individual sounds would break off and form themselves into voices. When the room was quiet, he heard less, but a muffled echo would become a man in the next room. When he moved his leg, his leg would speak to him. When his stomach grumbled, it became an angry reprimand. The voices were like the aftertrace of color images, as if when he waved his hands through the air, it left language in its wake. Horrifying language, words that sneered and drawled. He knew these voices were symptoms of an illness, but they sounded real to him, and he could not dismiss the possibility that they were people. So you can see, and there probably is a continuum in the general population of the kind of phenomenon that this man experiences. But I want to offer another explanation today, a different pathway that I think, and so I'm making an argument for this pathway to you and also to the scientific li literature, to my buddies in psychiatric science. Um, I want to suggest the differences in the way that some people relate to their th thought enables them to, or facilitates these more unusual, intense experiences. So who am I to make such a claim? I am an anthropologist who's spent decades talking to people about their human relationships with invisible others. My first book was about people who sought to create relationships with Caridun and Kernunas and Demeter and kind of the invisible others of a pagan world. 
My next book was about people who are trying to revive their relationship with the, the Zoroastrian Ahura Mazda and have Ahura Mazda become alive to get them again. I wrote, wrote a book on evangelical charismatic Christianity in which I tried to understand how people created a relationship with God and they were seeking to create these intimate, dialogic, back and forth relationships with, with God. I've since been spending time in similar churches in Chennai, in South India, and in Accra, and actually in Cape Coast, in Ghana, in West Africa. And in the course of a meandering life, I've gotten myself initiated into an Anglo-Cuban Santeria house, spent a year with black Catholics, spent a year with Balchuva Jews in a shul, spent a little less than a year in a California cult because it scared me. I have become somebody that people write to, and they say, you really ought to interview me. And so I've talked to a lot of people who've had these experiences. I've also spent a lot of time with people who you would, all of you, would agree are psychotic. I spent well over a thousand hours on the streets of Chicago in an area that has the densest, you know, con in the densest per capita, uh, has a population of persons with, this, with psychosis in the entire state of Illinois, apart from the jails. And I've talked to those people in, again, in Chennai, in South India, and in Accra, and in Cape Coast, in, in Ghana. And so I want to begin by telling you what I think I've learned and what I, what I see in the voices of madness and the voices that Christians experience when they experience God. And I, I'll say that I, I see two broad patterns, that these voices actually seem to feel and perform in very different ways. So folks with psychosis, when they talk about their voices, what they report are very frequent experiences. People sometimes experience voices when they're psychotic as if they've got a, their, their head is in a beehive of buzzing, angry voices. People hear 17 voices, a 100 voices, sometimes a constant stream of voices, voices in the next room, and good voices, and bad voices, and scritching sounds, and people talk about a field of rats running at them. They hear not only a few words, but sentences, and paragraphs, and conversations, and often what they hear is so bad that psychiatric scientists like Judy Ford try to give brain models that help to explain why these neural circuits kind of twist the language sideways and make it so corrosive. When, when I talk to Christians, that's not what I experience. Christians say that they've had these experiences once or twice or maybe a handful of times. What they report is brief, four to six words. And what they experience is startling rarely negative. So I remember a woman who said that she was driving down the street and God spoke up from the back seat audibly and he said, I will always be with you. It was pretty startling. She pulled over to the side of the road and then she wept with joy. One of the things I noticed about the Christian experience is that it can be developed. So in the, in the, in the Chicago and 
um, South Bay Church where I was spending time trying to understand the experience of charismatic Christians. I saw that pe some people would come into the church and they would say, well, God doesn't talk to me. You know, would, would you pray for me? Because God doesn't talk to me and I know he talks to you. And I would see that people would buy books on how to cultivate God's voice, and they'd, talk, and they'd go to classes, and they were in house groups, and they'd talk to people. And I saw that they had to learn to think about their minds differently. They needed to think about their minds as containing thoughts. These are not voices, thoughts, in which images and sensations and feelings that they might have thought were generated by themselves, they needed to open their, their, the possibility that perhaps those thoughts were placed there by God, that their minds weren't entirely private, but open in new ways. Let me tell you what this feels like to a woman who's trying to explain this to me. She said, when people were praying over me, I'm just receiving it, meaning the prayer, and all of a sudden I hear in her mind as a thought, go to Kansas which is where her parents happened to live. Because I'd been debating about whether to go to Kansas, but I hadn't been thinking about it within a 24-hour period. It makes you want to say, where did that come from? So these Christians would talk about discernment. They would talk about how they you know, picked out these voices, these, these thoughts in their mind. They would talk about, you know, they'd look for spontaneous thoughts, Thoughts that said things that didn't, that didn't sound like them. Thoughts that seemed to be congruent with their model of God. And they'd want, they're often pretty cautious about whether this really was God or not. But what I was struck by is that after a few months, people would say to me, I recognize God's voice the way I recognize my mom's voice on the phone. Now, these were very frequent experiences. And they're not voices in the way that I'm trying to describe today. They're the many manuals would often begin by talking about Moses and Abraham and Saul. And then they would say, of course, we don't expect you, the person reading this manual, to hear God speak out loud. And so it wasn't these experiences. So hearing aloud was not modeled for people as something that they should expect to experience. And yet a third of the people that I spoke to said that something like that had happened to them. So I noticed that these experiences were more likely to be associated with what I'll call inner sense cultivation or mental imagery practice. That's the way an anthropologist might re-describe the practice of prayer. So one of the spiritual practices you find in many, many spiritual endeavors, spiritual walks, is using the inner imagination to represent an invisible being. So this is not to claim that God is imaginary. It's to point out that because God is not visible to the senses in an ordinary way, people use their inner senses to represent their experience of being with God. So the charismatic Christians that I spoke to would talk about praying, and they would talk about going for a walk with God, sitting on a park bench with God, experiencing his arm around their shoulders, talking to him about their day, talking to him about what was going on in his, 
They talk about standing in the throne room and trying to experience the, the heat of his presence on their cheeks. They were trying to use all of their inner senses to enable themselves to have as vivid as possible a sense that, the, that the, what they had to imagine was present and available to them. And I noticed something as an anthropologist. So I was spending months and months in these churches, and I noticed that the people who did a lot of praying, I noticed this amongst the, the witches and magicians as well, the pagans, I noticed that people who did a lot of this stuff would say that over time, their mental images grew sharper. They would say that the things they had to imagine, like God, like Mary, felt more alive to them, felt more real. And although they didn't put this together as part of the package, I noticed that they were the ones who were more likely to say they'd had some kind of odd sensory experience that they hadn't really expected. So I ran an experiment, got over 100 charismatic Christians into my office. We sat them in front of computer consoles and we had them do little tests on mental imagery. We gave them standard surveys. We talked to them for a couple of hours. And then we randomized them, either to inner sense-rich practices, like the Ignatian spiritual exercises, that's what we modeled their practice on, or to lectures on the gospel by Luke Timothy Johnson, great lectures. And the rule was half an hour a day, six days a week for four weeks. Brought them back in, gave them a few more, few more of these surveys and conversations and computer exercises. And the ones in the prayer condition were more likely to report sharper mental images, more sense of God's presence, more sense of God as a person, more voices and visions. We also gave them a diagnostic inter interview. None of these people met criteria for psychosis. So I want to suggest that there's a non-mad pathway, although there is also a psychotic pathway. There's a, that there's a non-mad pathway um, in which paying attention, paying intense attention to inner events leads to those events seemingly to be more external, more in the world real. That sometimes, at some points, these, for these people, something kind of pops into the world and becomes vividly present. I have to say, following Dick Friedman, we don't know why somebody has a vivid experience Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. We do know that this pathway may exist. And one of the things that enables this pathway is the observation that some people judge an ambiguous thought or sensation if they're really engaged in that inner experience and their judgment changes the event and it pops outside for them. So I'm suggesting here that there's an orientation towards mental experience, for want of a better term, that changes that mental experience. This being caught up in the vividness. If you're somebody who's able to do that and you're trained to do that, you're more likely, those, those people are more likely to report the voices, the visions, the other cool stuff. I'm gonna call this orientation absorption. And so absorption is a name for an immersive involvement 
in inner experience or in outer experience. So there's there's, um, people who like being caught up in their imagination. There's a scale, it's called the absorption scale, developed by Aoki Telligan and Gilbert Atkinson back in 1974. That's when they published it. So there are 34 items. And when you take the scale, you say, is this sentence true or false for me? I can be greatly moved by eloquent or poetic language. Sometimes I can change noise into music by the way I listen to it. If I wish I can imagine or daydream something so vividly that they hold my attention the way a good movie or a story does. So one of the things I, my colleagues, have found that the past decade is that absorption predicts spiritual events, to use that language. It predicts people who say that they hear, the more highly people score themselves on this scale, the more likely they are that they, to say they've heard God's voice, seen the wing tip of an angel. I've done this with Christians. I've done this with undergraduates. I've done this with Christians in Chennai and Christians in Accra. Um, we've, we, you can do it in a variety of different settings. I think this is what absorption looks like. Somebody who is caught up in their inner world, they're loving it, it's satisfying. Somebody who does this is a little bit more likely to say that they've had one of these voice-hearing experiences or a range of other sensory events. So now I want to ask a different question. Does somebody's model of mind change their mental experience? So I've just said that an orientation towards mental events, that might change your mental experience. Does the way that that you think about your mind, does that change your experience? And so I'm going to try to make sense of this question by stepping back to what Gregory Bateson called an ecology of mind thinking about thoughts in relationship to other thoughts in the experience of the world. And I'll begin with William James. The universal conscious fact is not feelings and thoughts exist, but I think and I feel. That what it is to be aware as a human being, no matter what kind of human being you are, is that there's a quality of minus to your inner experience, a sense of that me. Even if you don't use the word me, there's a sense of, of, of connection to thoughts and to feelings that's kind of different than your relationship to the world. So I'm going to call this, I know this is slightly heretical for anthropologists to do, I'm going to call this the human condition. That's what it is to be aware, and I think that all humans are aware, is to be aware of something that's a little bit more inner and has thoughts and feelings and be aware of something that's a little bit more other. I'll call for want of a better term, the world. Charles Taylor tells, well, anthropologists would tell us we all imagine this relationship differently. Charles Taylor would tell us that this is the way that we should understand the human condition, that humans Imagine the modern humans, sorry, this is the modern condition. Humans um, in the modern world imagine their mind as blocked off from the outer world by a boundary that's thick and tall and impermeable. 
and that our minds in the modern condition, they're really, really important. Uh, what we think is who we are, and yet our minds are also kind of epiphenomenal. They don't really, it's the brain, that pulpy three-pound thing, that's what counts. Our mind, we don't even know how to theorize what the, nat what the nature of our mind is. And Taylor invites us to say that we could imagine the mind otherwise. That you could imagine the mind as a, or you could imagine the mind world boundary as more like a mesh. So that thoughts or feelings could kind of leave you almost under their own control. As if they kind of would ooze out into the world and do stuff. So for example, maybe, you know, you know, when you had, could get really, really angry with somebody, you have a terrible fight with people, with someone, sometimes you have the idea that the room is tainted. It feels different afterwards. Sometimes if you know that, if you're house hunting and you knew that somebody had died a horrible death in the house, you might be a little uncomfortable about buying that house. I'm gonna call this porosity following Charles Taylor's word. I'm gonna suggest that this is, porosity is the idea that the mind-world boundary is permeable in non-ordinary ways. And for the sake of clarity, I'll say that in a secular context, we mean that that, that is permeable in supernatural ways. That there's something about, that when we think about the mind-world boundary as porous, we think of thoughts as going out, or coming in, in ways that are charged with supernatural capacity. This is the domain of witchcraft and cursing, certain kinds of prayer. I wanna take us just a minute or two to suggest that many of us have intuitions about porosity, even in a world in which we model our minds with Taylor's bounded understanding. So we might think that wishing, you probably think that wishing doesn't affect the world unless you act on it, unless you do something. I, 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 Dick Friedman said that, you were, that this is a world of football fanatics. And I'm guessing that many of you have seen people behave as if wishing intensely might actually change the way the ball moves down that field. I'm gonna suggest that you all have the basic, our cultural model, that bounded model, is that our thoughts are created by us. But many of you have spoken as if sadness, it just came over me, I don't know where it came from. It just happened, it came into me. The poem, it just came to my mind. The anger, I don't know where that came from. Just came, it, just, it just happened. It was as if it came from the outside. In, in the bounded condition, we think of our minds as private. But many of you have been curious about whether a psychic could really know what's going on in your mind. Many of us think of the mind as located in the body. That's where it is. But if you have a shred of religious, a shred of faithfulness, you probably have very complicated intuitions about the, the body dying 
but something like the soul or the spirit surviving in some way. That's the mind being separated from the body. So I want to suggest that porosity intuitions are actually pretty readily available to many people, even in the modern bounded condition. And anthropologists have a lot to say about how they will be, how they become socially elaborated and compelling for different reasons. So this is the kind of stuff that anthropologists study. These are religious, these are religious cultural institutions, witchcraft, sorcery, you know, psychism as a kind of institution. And one of the things I would say is that at the heart of each of these organizations, these set of practices, is the idea of porosity. So in witchcraft, we have this, this you know, there, there are social worlds, many, many of them, um, over the course of, of history, where people, where groups of people have thought that witches can do stuff. There, there, there are people called witches, and at the, at the heart of that idea is the, or the heart of that cultural construct is the idea that somebody's anger or envy can somehow leach into the world and make somebody else sick, even kill them. At the heart of the idea of sorcery is the idea that the, tr that the sorcerer can take an intention to hurt or to help and encase that intention in something and give it to somebody or maybe even just speak some words, and that it will affect somebody else's body. By the time this becomes a cultural institution, there are usually lots of rules, special people, special words, special implements like a wand, and there, there, are, there are limitations. But what we also know is that different parts of the world in which these elaborated cultural practices become more important than elsewhere. Anthropologists have noticed, for example, that you find ideas about witchcraft in small face-to-face -face societies, usually where people are stuck on the ground because they're doing agriculture. You find lots of ideas in, about witchcraft in agricultural societies across history. You find very few of them in nomadic societies or even in pastoral societies. So there's something about these porosity ideas it has something to do with culture, belief, ideas, practices. I want to suggest that because porosity is about the relationship between the mind and awareness in the world, porosity might affect the way people interpret ambiguous thoughts or events. So that brings me to the Mind and Spirit Project. This is a project I've been running for the last three years. We asked, does the way that someone thinks about thinking the way that somebody thinks about their mind, does it affect their experience of spirit? Do they, does it affect the frequency with which they report voices, visions, or for that matter, a sense of presence and other experiences? We worked in five parts of the world, United States, Ghana, Thailand, China, Vanuatu. Here is our group, we were Templeton funded. And there are the, the, the uh, language competent field, working, field worker anthropologists going down one side with our uh, data czar, co-PI, 
and our project manager, and we had a crew of really competent people who helped us, along with John Bileski and Courtney Hunvin in one session. So let me tell you what we did. We asked questions about mind and questions about spirit. We asked, what do you believe about the mind? And we asked about what I'll call men mental porosity. We also asked about opacity. Do you think it's possible to know what somebody else is, is thinking? We asked about imagination. Do you think it's good for kids to make up things that aren't, just aren't true? And we'd ask some of those questions directly, but we asked them, many of them, with stories. We told stories about people, and we said to individuals, so what do you think about this? Is this a good thing, or is this a bad thing? We asked questions about spirit, and there we were asking, have you personally ever experienced a voice, a vision, a sense of presence, da ba da ba da 24 questions. And we asked those questions both with the tools that I had developed, in my previous work, and we used and we worked on those and we changed those and we argued over those, and we also used some instruments that other people had developed other, and had used in other settings. We did a bunch of work. We did intense ethnographic interviews with people of deep faith, and we had a group within, we did that six, with 60 to 80, people in each setting, 30 to 40 of them were always charismatic Christians. We did short face-to-face -face interviews with different people, members of the general population, and a subsampling of charismatic Christians. We did pen and paper surveys with college students, and we chose college students because they do this weird pen and paper business called exams, and so they're a little less startled when you give them a survey. And then we did a second round. And we gave a bunch of people the absorption questionnaire. And we would translate this. And we, uh, we worked in the local language and in the language of instruction. This is kind of what face-to-face -face interviewing looks like. That's a little more dramatic than usual. But these are two of my subjects. This is what the surveys look like. It's a lot of paper. It takes some effort to get it back to the home base. This is what the short face-to-face -face interviews look like. You find a line and you just position yourself on the line so that the bored people can be a little more entertained. We asked people about, so just to give you a feel of the kinds of things that we asked when people were on, online, we would, we would ask, you know, have you ever heard God or a spirit speak to you in a voice that you heard outside your head? And if they said yes, we probed. Did, was it really outside your head? Did you turn your head to see who was, spoken, who, who was speaking? Now, where, did you, where, where do you think you heard it? Have you, heard, have you ever had a dream that was sent by God or a spirit? Have you ever felt that God or a spirit was near tangibly present, as if standing right there by your side? And we asked these questions that were much more belief and culture questions, um, like these. Spirits can use human thoughts or feelings to hurt people. It, does ha it doesn't happen, it might happen, it definitely happens. Evil waves can go into the world like a Wi-Fi or a radio, like radio waves going directly into the world and cause bad things to happen to other people without a spirit's help. It does not happen, it might happen, it, de it definitely happens. What do you think? And we, we had both positive items there as well as negative items. We'd, 
we registered and we did what my colleagues do and they're really super careful. We wrote this long document, we registered it with Open Science and then we went back to undergraduates, a new round of undergraduates and asked our questions again. We put every piece of every salient piece of paper into that document. The results held. No matter where you go in the world in this study, no matter how you ask the question, the more absorption somebody reports, the more voices they describe, the more porosity, the more voices they report, even within our charismatic Christian sample. And we did things to make sure that it wasn't just that some of these charismatic Christians like to say yes to things and some people don't. That does not explain why people responded. This is supposed to persuade you that we actually did some real work. I'm not, not gonna try to explain it, except to say that the vertical lines, this are, this is our, these are our summary slides from each of our four main studies that I've quickly described. The vertical line is the number of spiritual events somebody is describing. The horizontal line is either porosity or absorption. And the fact that somebody, and that the fact that there's this, you know, kind of line going upwards that tells you that there's a reasonably tight relationship that we look across in all these different ways we talk to people. And the more the, the people who, the more people are saying that they've had spiritual experiences, the more absorption and the more porosity they're reporting. So why might these factors matter? Well, I think absorption is something like an experiential attitude. I think that absorption is both a matter of proclivity. Some people are more oriented that way. And also a matter of practice. Some people learn to, to get more involved. And think that there's some kind of story about inner immersion increasing vividness. Porosity is something like a disinterest in the mind-world boundary leads to more external attribution. Perhaps thought, perhaps when you think that your mind is porous and the thoughts go out and cursing is real, maybe you think that thought is a little more substantial. So the point is that some bodies doing some practices in some cultures are more likely to have these events than other people. So this is a story of multiple pathways that I want to commit to. I want to suggest to people who know this much better than I do that multiple kinds of voices are depicted in the biblical text. That when I read the story of Samuel, I hear the I'm not making a claim about what Samuel actually experienced. I'm not making the claim. I, but I, what I am, what I am telling you, that when I read this story, I think of a certain kind of human experience. Samuel heard a brief voice a couple of times, three times. And that's his voice hearing. I think that's his voice hearing experience that's reported. That sounds to me like a pathway I didn't really talk about, although I bet Samuel, Samuel, with scare quotes, was a little higher in absorption. There's a story to tell about sleep and about the frequency of voice hearing on the edge of sleep. I think you can make the, the, this, the claim 
that the disciples are having bereavement experiences. They're told in a particular way. The experiences are probably longer lasting than usual bereavement experiences. But I am struck by the fact that the disciples are not having experiences that completely violate my expectation of what bereaved people experience. John of Patmos, I think, is a very highly absorbed person who's very engaged, and he's clearly having at least one auditory event, and he seems to be living in a kind of unfolding daydream that's a kind of a terribly vivid trance. I think that it's possible that Ezekiel's having an, you know, a, something like a psychotic process. He's had, he has an awful lot of voice hearing events. Some of them are pretty peculiar. He digs into that wall a lot and sees terrible things on that wall. So that's the question that comes to my mind, is the, is the narrator describing a different kind of person? I put that in there because this is the kind of thing that interests this, this world. The point I really am committed to, and I'll end here, is the observation that voices are human experiences, that they're, that they're important, they change history, they're worth attending to, they're involved with religious change, and finally that they occur through different pathways. They are not all signs of madness. Thanks for listening. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. This lecture was delivered at the 2020 Southeastern Regional Meeting of the American Academy of Religion. Thank you to Lily Baldwin, who edited this podcast, and to the John Templeton Foundation for funding the work of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology.